Welcome to Head, Heart, and Hands, the teaching fellowship of Bob Carter, pastor of River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. The Bible teaches that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. We want to help you do just that. First, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a call to our heads. God wants us to think and to think correctly. Second, the gospel is also a call to our hearts. We are to love God and to love what God loves. And the gospel is a call to our hands, to action, real change and transformation. Now let's join our teacher, Bob Carter, for today's challenging message. sermon this morning is entitled, Creating a Unified Kingdom of Peace Out of Chaos. We're in the third chapter of 2 Samuel this morning. As we're looking at that, we're seeing David establishing himself as king, but not everyone yet recognizes it. In fact, at this point, it's still a minority of the 12 tribes are acknowledging him to be the king. We indicated before that there were several themes in 1 Samuel and themes here in 2 Samuel. One of the key themes in 1 Samuel is not everyone talking about heaven is going there. It's the distinction between the visible and the invisible church. It's a prominent theme in the Bible, and it's very glaring in 1 Samuel. 2 Samuel has a couple of themes as well. One of them is loyalty and treason. Loyalty and treason appear all through this book, and we tend to think of those in regard to government, as we should. But what we fail to do is understand that the church is the kingdom of God and that our God is the king. So loyalty and treason have much application in the body of Christ. Another theme in this second Samuel is sowing and reaping. We see sowing and reaping all through this. In fact, we're going to see in a few chapters here a reality that King Saul sowed something that comes to pass probably 30 years later, maybe a little less than that, in the destruction of all of his grandchildren. His sons have already died with him in battle, except for one. But he does still have grandchildren, and they're living their life going right on. But about 30 years later, God brings a plague on the land. And David says, why is it? And he says, because Saul betrayed my covenant with the Gibeonites. So King David goes to the Gibeonites and asks them, what will it take to make peace with you? And they say, give us the sons of Saul. And he gathers them all but one and turns them over. We often think of consequences coming pretty quickly on the heels of our actions. But it is often not the case in the Bible. And we need to hear that both in regard to blessings, the things that we're sowing in our lives and that we'll reap for eternity, as well as sins and difficulties. Loyalty and treason, sowing and reaping. Men's hearts are revealed over time and through various circumstances, and we'll see that here in the opening chapters. On any given day, and sometimes for a week or even for a season of our life, we might appear to be walking very comfortably with God, as did King Saul. But God and his ways, God and his commands, God and his providences will cross our path. And every one of us will have more than one occasion in our life to actually relate to Abraham when he's asked, Take now your son, your only son, and sacrifice him to me. The call of God is a radical call. If any member be my disciple, says the Lord Christ, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And then he grants us, in most cases, plenty of opportunities to see, is that the case? And then we see in the scriptures the Lord Christ as the second Adam that in every circumstance 
The Lord Christ, according to Philippians chapter 2, holds all things, including his eternal glory with the Father and the Holy Spirit, in the palm of his hand, looking to his Father. And saying, Heavenly Father, you give, and you take away, and you give again, and you be glorified, even to the point of death, and death on a cross. So we ourselves want to come to the Word of God today with the desire to learn what we must learn, and to unlearn what we must unlearn. Please stand to honor the reading of God's Word as we turn in our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 3. We'll read the first 21 verses, 2 Samuel chapter 3, as we see the ongoing of the chaos and warfare between the rightly appointed King David and the wrongly appointed King Ishbosheth, the son of Saul. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew steadily stronger, but the house of Saul grew weaker continually. Sons were born to David at Hebron. His first was Amnon by Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and his son Kiliav by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, and the third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, and the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Hagith, and the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth, Ethraim, by David's wife, Egla. These were born to David at Hebron. It came about while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David that Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Abner, you recall, is the commander-in-chief under King Saul and is the one who himself anointed and appointed Ishbosheth to be king. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth, and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show kindness to the house of Saul your father to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hands of David. And yet today you charge me with a guilt concerning the woman? May God do so to Abner, and more also, if as the Lord has sworn to David, I do not accomplish this for him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and to establish the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. And he could no longer answer Abner a word, because he was afraid of him. Then Abner sent messengers to David in his place, saying, Whose is the land? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you, to bring all Israel over to you. He said, Good, I will make a covenant with you, but I demand one thing of you, Namely, you shall not see my face, unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see me. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michael, to whom I was betrothed for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her weeping as he went, and followed her as far as Baharim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. So he returned. Now Abner had consultation with the elders of Israel, saying, In times past you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then, do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines, and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin, and in addition, Abner went to speak into the hearing of David in Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and to the whole house of Benjamin. Then Abner and twenty men with him came to David at Hebron, 
And David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Abner said to David, Let me arise and go and gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may be king over all that your soul desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Will you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us now. We acknowledge the great probability of our walking away from this with very little profit. And yet you tell us that this is your living and active eternal word. That it is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And we have great need of great counsel in our lives. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would give us ears to hear. And that you would cause us to make application that we might indeed embrace the Lord Christ and of his gospel and kingdom with our heads, with our hearts, and with our hands. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. What we see from the beginning of 1 Samuel through the end of 2 Kings is a largely downward progression. The people ask for a king, and God says to them, well, I'm your king, and they want a regular earthly king like the other kings have. And God is aware the other kings on the earth are sinful kings. They're limited in their understanding, they're limited in their abilities and their wisdom, and they're limited in their lifespan. And God has none of those limitations. But he gives them King Saul that they might know what a king is like. And he chooses someone that they would have chosen, whose only characteristic is that he's tall, but he turns out to be a very bad king. And then he gives them King David, who is in fact a foreshadowing in type of Christ, a man after God's own heart. And then David has King Solomon, chooses him as his, among his sons to be the heir. Solomon's name means his peace. And while Solomon is king, he's actually crowned by the high priest named Zadok, which means righteousness. So during Solomon's reign, peace is on the throne and righteousness is in the temple. And it represents a foreshadowing of the marriage supper of the Lamb and of the rule of Christ in peace. But then the kingdom is split after after uh, Solomon's death. And one king after another begins to spiral down. And once in a while, in a rare occasion, one of the kings will sort of come back up with some genuine revival for a season. But typically his son will not carry it out when he comes to the throne. And it spirals down and down and down. And finally, the last good king is Josiah. And Josiah has three sons and a grandson who rule after him. They're all wicked kings. And the last one is Zedekiah, whose name means the Lord is righteousness. Or the Lord is righteous. And Zedekiah resists Nebuchadnezzar. And he's told by a prophet that Nebuchadnezzar is from God. But he resists him anyway. And Zedekiah brings out all of his sons and kills them in front of him and then blinds him. I'm sorry, Nebuchadnezzar does that to Zedekiah. This starts with the destruction of Saul's sons. And the entire history of kings ends with the destruction of Zedekiah's sons. And we see this incredible theme that there is nothing under the sun that God doesn't know about. We are familiar to some degree with Psalm 137 and 139 and those passages that talk about the reality that God is present everywhere and we can't escape him. And we're familiar with the passage from the Apostle Paul that God is not mocked. Whatever man sows, that will he also reap. And we see example after example in Scripture and we see it in our own lives and we are so foolish we continue in a lot of our foolishness ourselves, thinking that the things that we do will go unnoticed 
by God, but the Bible says the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. And so we see here as David as a type of Christ, God is beginning to establish his kingdom. But much like creation itself back in Genesis 1, there is chaos here. And God is bringing order into the chaos. The machinations of men and striving against the revealed will of God. The question for us to ask is, who is David? David is anointed by Samuel the prophet. He is attested. He's valiant. He's faithful. And he's the one they say Saul has slain his thousands. But David is ten thousands. And so we should have some understanding of who David is. And Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, certainly knows who David is. And how did Ishbosheth manage to live to become king? He apparently wasn't with them, their brothers, when they were in battle. Somehow he was unworthy or unable or something to even go into battle. And yet here he is, King Ishbosheth, the brother of Jonathan, is no Jonathan. And he has not been anointed by God to be king, but here he is serving as king, at least over part of the country. And who is Abner? Abner, you may recall, is Saul's uncle, as well as the commander-in-chief or the captain of the army of the northern forces or of Israel. And so we see these people and we see the reality that the machinations of men begin to unfold. David himself is seeking to do the will of God, but he is waiting on God. He's been anointed as king for years, but has not asserted himself while King Saul was still aware, alive. We find the reality that the Bible and God himself is the source to tell us what we need to do, and very often when we need to do it. Look on the front of your bulletin. It says there, uh, Robert sent me this week, I thought it was remarkably profound. On the front of your bulletin, under the hymn, it says there, the Bible really is the universe's most accurate manual on reality that has ever been written. Listen to that again. The Bible really is the universe's most accurate manual on reality. You expect him to say, on God, or godliness, or goodness. Well, that would be true as well. But on reality, the Bible tells us what is real. And Paul David Tripp acknowledges that to be the case uh, in a remarkable way. And one of the things the Bible tells us is that while God is ruling and reigning over all of his creatures and all their actions, we have an adversary, the devil, who is a liar and a murderer and the father of lies. And he prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may destroy. The reality is that we need to be mindful of our enemy, the devil. He is everywhere. He is trying to ruin the plan of God. He will not do so, but in the meantime, he will reap a lot of havoc. Back in your bulletin on the uh, third page there under the preaching, there's a quote from Samuel Rutherford, Samuel Rutherford being one of the Puritan preachers. Samuel Rutherford says this, that we should expect difficulty. King David is experiencing difficulty. He's going to experience quite a bit of difficulty. He experienced almost nothing but difficulty in 1 Samuel. While King Saul was still alive, with King Saul trying to kill him on several occasions and putting out the word to his men that he would reward anyone else who killed King David. Saul, in that sense, represents our adversary, the devil. Samuel Rutherford says we, the believers, should anticipate that ourselves as we seek to be a part of God's unified and kingdom of peace, that the devil is no part of that. The devil's war is better than the devil's peace. Suspect dumb holiness. He means, he's saying the same thing as Amy Carmichael. You should expect difficulty. If you don't have difficulty, you might want to suspect whether or not you're converted. When the dog is kept outdoors, he howls to be let in again. Contraries meetings such as fire and water conflict with one another. When Satan finds a sanctified heart, he tempts with much importunity. Urgency. Where there is much of God and of Christ, there are strong injections and firebrands cast in at the window so that some of much faith have been tempted to doubt. 
And Rutherford here is acknowledging that no, rather than doubting as a result of the difficulties we encounter, it could indeed be a confirmation of our position in Christ. Because in fact, the reality is that the more we walk in the ways of God, the closer to the crosshairs of the, set of the evil one we come. And we do see it again and again in our lives. And we see it in the life of David. We sang this morning from Psalm 37, Let not thy faith grow dim. Let not thy faith grow dim. David, after Saul's death, listen to this. Saul has tried to kill him on numerous occasions. David has been promised since he was a youth, probably a teenager, almost certainly, that he's going to be king. He was anointed by Samuel. He knows he's going to be king of Israel. He's been told by very reliable sources. But nothing like it has come to pass. And now Saul is dead and he's thinking, okay, now things are going to go well. I'm going to be the next king. But the Bible tells us that Ishbosheth is king over most of Israel for the next two years. You might recognize that period of time. Two years is the amount of time after Joseph gives the right interpretation to the butler while he's in prison. And the butler comes out and is restored before Pharaoh. And the baker is executed, just like Joseph said. And on his way out, Joseph says to him, Remember me when you come before Pharaoh. Make mention of me before the king and get me out of this place. And Joseph thinks he's going to get a message any day now. That the king has called for you to be free. But two years of days go by, it says in the Hebrew, as Joseph is waiting on the promise of God. David is in the same situation. Two years are going by. It looks like, oh, I'm going to be king any day now. Maybe a month or two to settle this thing, but, but I'm going to... two more years go by. And we need to understand the timing of God and the wisdom of God. Please hear this. I've said it before. And how critical it is if Joseph would have glorified God by being released from his prison and being made king over Egypt on the day that the butler is restored, then that's how it would have happened. If Joseph was ready for it, and God's perfect timing was ready for it, that's how it would have happened, but it didn't happen that way. God apparently thought Joseph had some more things to learn in order for him to be king over Egypt. And the same thing is true for David. If he was ready now to be king over all Israel, he would be king over all Israel under the providence and sovereignty and power of God, but he's not. There's more for him to learn about loyalty and treason. Kings need to know about that kind of thing. And God is preparing him. And the same thing is true in your life. That God is sovereign over every aspect of your life. And he is bringing all things to pass to his glory and to the benefit of your soul. And the child of God recognizes that and praises the Almighty that he that watches over Israel, you can fill in your name there if you're in Christ Jesus. He that watches over Israel slumbers not nor sleeps. But in the passage that we look at today here, in chapter 3, verses 2 through 6, we see that he is gaining sons. And it's no accident here. It's no, iron, it's no uh, coincidence. David is gaining sons while Saul is losing sons. Saul is dead, but his sons are dying. And his grandsons are going to die. And his entire line is going to come to an end. But David is being blessed with sons in abundance. The reality is that God is sovereign over all that takes place, including over our enemies. In verse 6, it says, It came about while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David that Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. So he's got a real opponent here. But while he's got a real opponent here in Abner, and Abner is a very capable warrior general, it turns out that under the sovereignty of God, 
the king over there that Abner put in charge, the last son of Saul, Ishbosheth, insults him. And when he insults Abner, he makes Abner his enemy for life. David has nothing to do with it. David is a great warrior. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. But here the God of the universe is doing it in such a way that when Abner comes to him and offers him the entire kingdom, David will say, this is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. There isn't anything that is too difficult for our good God. There are times that we go into battle. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And there are times in which the God of the universe says, stand back and see the salvation of the Lord. And we want to read our Bibles and to plead with God in prayer and with wise counsel, be seeking what season are we in in our situation. The king here, Ishbosheth, who has been made king by Abner and has known Abner all his life, he's a relative. Abner, again, was Saul's uncle, makes a false accusation. It's a groundless charge to a long-standing, faithful, valiant family, friend, and relative. Listen to that again. It's a groundless charge to a long-standing, faithful, valiant, and family, friend, and relative. He is sowing, and he reaps the loss of his kingdom two years later entirely. He begins to lose it right now. He's sowing to the future, and it comes back very heavily on his head, very heavily on his head. We must ourselves be mindful of this and plead with God every step of the way for his will, for his, way, for his ways in us, and for wisdom, that he would restrain us and our enemies. We need to immerse ourselves in the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We are not very able to do that often, especially when it involves us, but the Word of God is. And we need that wise counsel when we see these people sowing chaos into their lives and reaping destruction left and right. And so in verse 12, as we just read, Abner reaches out to David. And David is indeed uh, solidifying his kingdom, but not just solidifying his kingdom. Look at verse 13. Here's an odd thing in here for you. But what did I say to you? I said one of the dominant themes in this book is sowing and reaping. And the reality is, as sowing and reaping occurs in the Bible, very often years go by in between. And we have this tendency to think that if years have gone by and no ill has come from it, then no ill will come from it. And yet the illustrations are there time after time after time. Abner says, I want to make peace with you and I can bring the entire kingdom. And David says this, an odd request. He says, you shall not see my face unless you bring my wife, Michael. Well, who is Michael? Michael is the second daughter of Saul. When David went up to Goliath, he says, what will be done for the man who takes him out? And they tell him his family will be tax-free for the rest of his life and the king's going to give him his daughter as a wife. Goliath dies by the hand of David and David therefore is entitled to all of those things. Merav is the older daughter and Saul promises him Merav, but then he turns around and changes his mind and gives Merav to another man named Adriel. But he has a second daughter. And he gives Michael, the second daughter, whose name means who is like God, by the way. He gives Michael, the second daughter, to David. But then Michael and Saul virtually change their minds. And Michael is apparently married a second time here. Because she, her husband's mentioned here, Paltiel. But he was given, Saul gave her to David. Now listen, years have gone by. Years have gone by. And it says here that Paltiel follows along, weeping. His wife has been taken from him. Whose wife? She never was his wife. She never was his wife. She was the wife of David. And how many applications does that have for us today? 
in so many ways. But here we see this grievous situation, and you look at this, and you're like, oh, what a shame this is, and it is. But Michael has always been the wife of David, and David is just asking to clarify what belongs to him. There is a second factor here, of course, and the second factor is, is that he's solidifying the kingdom. He's aware that Saul's heirs are being executed, and he's also aware that somebody might want to produce heirs through either one of the daughters of Saul, and then their grandson would be a potential heir to Saul. And so by bringing Michael back under his watchful care and making sure that she's with him, he's also eliminating future claims to the throne. But the reality is here that we see sowing and reaping and the devastating heartache and the consequences of sin. But notice that Ishbosheth himself is the one who freely surrenders Michael. He's afraid of David. He is afraid of David. Let us not lose sight of the reality that when the demons appear, or demon-possessed people appear in front of Christ in the Gospels, they are afraid of him. They know who he is. They can reap a lot of havoc and damage. But when the Lord Christ steps on the scene, they know who he is, and they're afraid of him. In this chapter alone, there's turmoil and chaos and uncertainty. But Abner begins in verses 17 through 19 to make agreements with David that he's going to unify the kingdom. And the the beginnings of this begin to solidify here very much. So it's still going to take two more years before it actually unfolds altogether, but it's going to begin to happen here. And what we see is the unifying of all 12 tribes eventually here and soon under King David. This is quite like, if you remember, the uh, people of God being split at the Tower of Babel and being reunited at Pentecost. The people of God are split at the Tower of Babel as God himself divides their languages, and then God himself brings his people back together with one language. They can all speak different languages, but they all hear and understand each other. At Pentecost, and we see the unifying effect of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see the dividing effect of self and sin and foolishness, but the unifying effect of the gospel and of his kingdom. And then in verses 20 and 21, look at this in, our, in chapter 3 of Second Samuel. Then Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron, and David made a feast for Abner. This is like the marriage supper of the Lamb. They're making a feast over the agreement that there's going to be peace in the kingdom. They're going to be unified under one kingdom. Again, it doesn't happen right away, but they think it is. Some more chaos is going to break out even in the rest of this chapter. But they think peace is about on the edge here, and they make a marriage supper here. It is very temporal, but they, they believe that this is going to be the unification. Zechariah 9 has a, chapter 9, has a passage in there that most of us know from the Messiah, where that soprano comes out and sings that glorious aria called Rejoice Greatly, O Daughter of Zion. That passage which she sings says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king comes unto thee. He is the righteous Savior, and he shall speak peace unto the heathen. God does that in the gospel of Christ. He speaks peace to his enemies, allowing for reconciliation, for surrender, if you will, and for peace. We see the reality here that all of these men, listen to this, Saul, who is anointed by Samuel, we see Abner, who is his uncle, and sees every bit of this. Abner is right there when Saul is an absolute nobody, and then the God of the universe makes him king. And then we see Jonathan and all of his valiants, and Ishbosheth is the brother. All of these people, see the sovereignty of God moving in their lives. They are in the area where the tabernacle is, and they see the ongoing sacrifice of animals. They read and understand the law of Moses. They know the nature and character of God. And still they ignore it when the will of God and the providence of God crosses their path in a way that they don't agree with. These are not pagans who are involved in 2 Samuel chapter 3 and the earlier chapters. These are the people of God who are well-versed with the nature and character of God. 
They have every privilege, every advantage of the Word of God and of the ways of God, and yet they don't demonstrate that. I remind you that when God gave the Ten Commandments, He could have spoken to the whole world, but He did not. He spoke to the children of Israel, and they heard Him. The people in Egypt did not. The people in Syria did not. But the Israelites did, and these people are the ones who have this great treasure of the Word of God and of the way of God, and they are trampling it underfoot. Anytime the way of God crosses their path, they know about Abraham and how he was called to sacrifice his son. They know about Joseph and him being wrongly accused and then imprisoned for 13 years. They know about Moses and his 40 years as a shepherd after having been prince. And then the 40 years wandering in the wilderness with the children of Israel. They know about the exodus and the destruction of Pharaoh and the deliverance of God's people. They know about Joshua and the conquest of Jericho. They know about Samuel and his faithfulness to God. And they know about Saul. They have every advantage. And yet, they don't remember the nature of God. The Lord Christ in Luke chapter 17 gives us an awesome warning. In Luke chapter 17, he says, remember Lot's wife. Someone who is right there in Sodom and Gomorrah with a husband who knows something about God and she knows something about God and the God of the universe mercifully saves her and their two daughters, their sons-in-law, won't even come with them. And the four of them escaped Sodom and Gomorrah. The Bible tells us that the angels came and put their hands on them and pulled them out of the city because they were dragging their feet. And she's right there with them, with every advantage, and then proves herself to be a false convert by disobeying God and looking back. And is turned into a pillar of salt. And the Lord Christ says, Remember all the advantages and privileges that Lot's wife had? And look how she ended up. And God says to us today, remember Lot's wife. Remember these people who started so well and look how they ended. And take heed to yourself. Examine yourself. On the back of your bulletin, J.C. Ryle speaks of this. Learn then that the mere possession of religious privileges will save no one's soul. You may have spiritual advantages of every description. You may live in the full sunshine of the richest opportunities and the means of grace. He means the preaching of the word. He means the sacraments. He means the fellowship of the saints. He means prayer. You may enjoy the best of preaching and the choicest instruction. You may dwell in the midst of light, knowledge, holiness, and good company. All this may be, and yet you yourself may remain unconverted and at last be lost forever. This is J.C. Ryle preaching at the same time that Charles Spurgeon is preaching. And, J- and Charles Spurgeon is almost overwhelmed by how few people are being converted in the big scheme of things in England. He has a number of people being converted to his church, but Charles Spurgeon is a renegade independent. He's not part of the Church of England. He's mindful that the vast majority of the people in the Church of England are unconverted. And J.C. Ryle is a bishop in that church at the very same time. But J.C. Ryle understands that not everybody talking about heaven's going there. And he looks out at his congregation and he says, look, You had every advantage under the sun in all of your instruction growing up. I dare say this doctrine sounds hard to some readers. I know that many fancy they want nothing but religious privileges. They lack, is what he means. They lack nothing but religious privileges in order to become decided Christians, meaning they need more than what they have. They are not what they ought to be at present. They allow, they acknowledge, but their position is so hard they plead, and their difficulties are so many. Give them a godly husband or a godly wife. Give them godly companions or a godly master. Give them the preaching of the gospel. Give them privileges. He means Christian privileges. And then they would walk with God. It is all a mistake, J.C. Ryle says. 
It is an entire delusion. It requires something more than privileges to save souls. Joab was David's captain right next to David. Gazi was Elisha's servant right next to Elisha. Demas was Paul's companion. Judas Iscariot was Christ's disciple. And Lot had a worldly, unbelieving wife. These all died in their sins. They went down to the pit in spite of knowledge, warnings, and opportunities. And they all teach us that it is not privileges alone that men need. They need the grace of the Holy Ghost. Look at the last two paragraphs. I ask the children of religious parents to mark well what I am saying. It is the highest privilege, and those children can be any age. Your parents might have been the religious parents he's talking about, regardless of your age. I ask the children of religious parents to mark well what I am saying. It is the highest privilege to be the child of a godly father and mother and to be brought up in the midst of many prayers. It is a blessed thing indeed to be taught the gospel from our earliest infancy and to hear of sin and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and holiness and heaven from the first moment we can remember anything. But, oh, take heed that you do not remain barren and unfruitful in the sunshine of all these privileges. Beware, lest your hearts remain hard, impenitent, and worldly, notwithstanding the many advantages you enjoy. You cannot enter the kingdom of God on the credit of your parents' religion. You must eat the bread of life for yourself and have the witness of the Spirit in your own heart. You must have repentance of your own faith of your own and sanctification. Pursue peace with all men and the holiness without which no man will see the Lord. Sanctification of your own. If not, you are no better than Lot's wife. I pray that all professing Christians in these days, that was a hundred years ago, by the way, I pray that all professing Christians in these days may lay these things to heart. May we never forget that privileges alone cannot save us. Light and knowledge and faithful preaching and abundant means of grace, including the Lord's Supper and prayer. And the company of holy people are all great blessings and advantages. Happy are they that have them. But after all, there is one thing without which privileges are useless. That one thing is the grace of the Holy Ghost. Lot's wife had many privileges, but Lot's wife had no grace. The application for this is very brief and simple. To examine ourselves. To examine ourselves to see whether we possess holy affections. And if we don't, to be honest and to cry out to God that he might grant us repentance unto life, that he might give us a new heart that he might give us, as only he can, a love for him. There are many preachers who will say to you that God doesn't want to force anybody's hand to love them, to love him. You will never love God unless he causes you to love him. Unless he opens your eyes to your sin and gives you a new heart that would be able to love him. The second application is this. If you believe you are in Christ Jesus and have reasonable expectation of that based on the word of God, this is the Lord's doing, Psalm 118 says. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Many of these people that die in the first chapters of Second Samuel were surrounded with godly people and knew all about the nature and character of God, and demonstrated themselves to be only part of the visible church, who knew of God, but did not know God. R.C. Sproul says, Does God know you? As many as are in Christ Jesus, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Will you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we do praise you and thank you for your electing and covenant love. 
We do understand that it is you that saves us from you, by you, for you. Some boast in horses and some boast in chariots. But we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. God, we praise you and thank you that you've called us from darkness into your marvelous light. That you have washed us in the blood of Christ and held a blood-sealed pardon to us and pointed us to the cross of Christ that we might look and live. You've granted us your Holy Spirit and a new heart that we might know and understand and love and obey. God, we do praise you that the blood of Christ continues to cry out for us as we approach this, your Lord's table. As we we see so clearly that we ourselves have not been faithful and that you cannot be anything other than faithful. Grant us then to walk in thanksgiving, in joy, in humility, and in gladness. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Receive now the blessing of God for the people of God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace now and forever. Amen.
You've been listening to Head, Heart, and Hands with Bob Carter. This Bible teaching has been sponsored by River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. Our website is rivercityreform.org. River City Reformed Church meets on Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Temple Baptist Activity Center located on the corner of 17th Street Extension and George Anderson Drive. Please visit rivercityreform.org for more information or call us at 910-520-0272. That's 910-520-0272. At River City Reformed Church, We are all about loving God with our heads, hearts, and hands. We desire to know the one true God correctly. We long to love God, our Creator and Savior, passionately. We seek to worship and serve God willingly through the power of His Spirit. God wants us, and you, to ask good questions. He wants us to build our faith on credible evidence, not just a blind leap. Biblical Christianity is true. He also requires and strengthens us to conform our values and behavior to reflect His goodness and holiness. We're thinking, loving, serving. Come and see. John Piper has observed, worship is not the performance of a routine of hymns and prayers and preaching and anthems. When the angel said to John who had fallen at his feet, Don't do that to me. Worship God. He did not mean recite a creed or open your hymnal or listen to a sermon. He meant connect with God. Focus on God, not the messenger. Concentrate on God, not the hymn tune. Pursue God, not just knowledge about God. And in all your focusing and concentrating and pursuing after God, seek to stir up your feelings to love Him and honor Him and admire Him and fear Him and enjoy Him and savor Him. At River City, we agree, and we are not limited by a particular style. Rather, we are compelled by a timeless thanksgiving, repentance, joy, and reverence. Our Sunday morning worship is in Wilmington, North Carolina. Please visit rivercityreform.org for more information. On Sunday evenings, we meet for Bible study led by our pastor, Bob Carter. This study meets at 5 p.m. All are invited. Come and see.